identity, gender, compassion, and hope. Mary Rice Hassan is on Spirit Inspire starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Spirit Inspire for another rousing episode. I'm your host today, Eric Huff, and join with me today are my wonderful co-hosts, Brian Kane. Hello, everyone. John Soul. Hi. And Isaac Fox, unfortunately, wasn't able to be with us today, but we have a wonderful guest, uh, Mary Hassan. Uh, welcome, Mary. Thank you. All right. So uh, before we get started here, I want to kind of give some background. Mary's the senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Did I get that right? You did. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and maybe what those words that I just said mean. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Well, a good place to begin is um, professionally, I'm an attorney, and but I do not touch a courtroom. I okay. left that behind a long time ago. So I, I work on public policy and I've been working on matters related to the church for, gosh, a long time, decades now. So uh, I've been at the Ethics and Public Policy Center for about 10 years. And my focus there is really on a new project that I started called the Person and Identity Project, mm. which really is, is focused on helping uh, promote the truth about the human person but then also helping faith-based institutions, schools, parishes, dioceses, really um, address questions around gender ideology and, and the mm. whole transgender issue. So Okay, okay. so a lot to do with identity there. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me a little bit about your identity, maybe as a wife, <laughs> uh, a mother, <laughs> how you balance uh, those roles with a career. Um, obviously sounds like a big job, so yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think the most important thing about me is that I am a wife and a mother, and I, I feel very blessed to be called to that vocation. So I've been married to my husband, Seamus, for, gosh, 38 years. I love the name Seamus, by the way. Yeah. 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 It's an Irish name. Well, yeah. there's a story behind that, but we don't have time for that. <laughs> he's, his father's from Ireland, so he's, oh, wow. he's, he's, uh, he goes by Seamus. Um, and we have seven kids, and uh, we have... Uh, most of them are married, but not all. Um, and we now have three grandchildren and one more on the way. Wow. So we're moving to a different Thanks, phase God. of life. But to your point, I think it's helpful to think about life as having phases, that you can't do everything all at once. Mm. And yeah. I think for particularly for me as a woman, but I, I like to share that when I'm, I'm talking to young women in particular, people have a lot of talents and a lot of drive and they're saying, well, how am I gonna do it all? Mm. I think it's important to realize you don't do it all all at once. Mm. The question yeah. is, what does God want you to do right now? Amen. To Amen. be open to that yeah. and, and answer that question. All right, so that, that's a good way. That's some good advice to, to striking a balance. Uh, if anyone listening <laughs> is struggling with that, I know a lot of people, especially in my mm -hmm. age range, um, really struggle with, with striking those balances um, between work and family. I know in my own life, uh, that's the case also. All right, so, um, so what were you gonna say, Brian? Well, I was just gonna ask uh, if, if we could, you know, in my mind, identity starts very young. Yeah. Uh, I'm the father of four young children. The oldest yeah. is in kindergarten. And so six, four, two, zero, busy basically. Busy years. And yes, yeah. busy years. Yeah. Um, and I'm 
currently trying to help them form an identity mm-hmm. and know who they are. And so um, I was just curious, um, you know, about where'd your identity start and mm-hmm. um, what what are there experiences that you remember from childhood that helped shape you and give you the identity you have today? Yeah, sure. I, I was blessed to grow up in a, a really strong Catholic family. And I think one of the most important foundational things that, that you do as a father, I don't know if any of the rest of you have, have kids, but is to give your kids a sense of rootedness, mm-hmm. a sense of significance, because that, that's a quest of every heart. You know, why do I matter? Mm-hmm. Who am I? Why do I matter? And so from the youngest age, when adults, parents are paying attention to children and are showing them that, okay, I'll put the computer down, I'll put the phone down, I'm going to look you in the eye, I'm going to hear you. It matters to me what's going on in your life, your your little three-year-old life and, and you, you know, yeah. your toy broke or whatever. It, it helps to instill a sense of how significant they are. And the reason why that's important is because what parents do on that order really sets the stage for kids being able to appreciate that God really cares mm. about who they are yes. and that to God they have an irreplaceable significance. But I think it's it's parents, that's one of the hardest things because our own time is divided. We have our own weaknesses and things like yeah, that. that. That phone is hard yeah, to put down at yeah, times. It's, but uh, you but know, that's that. one of the most critical things that we do, and, and I grew up in a big family, so one of 10. Okay. Um, and as a side, wow. side note, I married an only child, and I was the, oh, first, wow. the, first, <laughs> the first one to get married in the family, and my siblings were very skeptical that, that he was going to sort of be well adjusted. Pass, pass yeah. with them. Right. So the first time I brought him over to the house, uh, my younger sisters, I, I'm one of seven girls and there were three boys. So my younger sisters all decided they were going to keep switching names on him all throughout oh, this, this family no. dinner and, and see how he handled it. And he, he passed. He okay. passed the test. So, but they, uh, they sort of enjoyed that. But, um, but being one of 10, you know, oftentimes people say, oh, you're just sort of part of a crowd. But mm. I never felt like that's how my parents looked at us. We weren't sort of the kids. We were the kids when it's time to get the kids out in the car. But individually, they cared very much about mm. nurturing yeah. each of our talents. I've got one brother who's very musical. Mm. I'm not, you know, others, uh, most of us were athletic and, and, and things like that. But, but they really looked at us and, as um, gifts from God. Mm. And, and I think that's one other sort of significant thing I think about growing up in a large family was my dad was a professor at Notre Dame. And at the time that I was growing up, 70s, early 80s, it was before professors were paid, at least at Notre Dame, they were not paid the salaries they're paid mm. now. Yeah. So being a professor and having 10 kids meant money was tight. Yeah. And yet I, I just distinctly remember all those years when my mom would, would be pregnant with like number six, number seven, number eight, number nine, there was never anything except joy. Mm. That they, they just really had that openness and that generosity of spirit that said, every child's a gift from God Amen. and we'll work it out. And, and I think I, I saw that in my life as, as a child growing up. You know, I, I remember times when, when money was really tight and, and we'd be praying and, and a check would come in that my dad was waiting for or something. You know, it just seeing God hmm. take care of our needs was yeah. really faith building as, yeah. as a child. And, and you say that I think the family, just having a big family doesn't mean everyone's going to feel loved and appreciated, mm-hmm. but it's really the attitude and open, gentle, 
spirit of generosity that your mm -hmm. parents exuded that not mm -hmm. every parents necessarily understand or appreciate when they have a large family or, yeah. or other things, which I think is maybe why society seems to have this jaded, cynical attitude toward mm -hmm. larger families. But when you have witnesses like mm -hmm. that, yeah. I think that's what will bring renewal to this desire for children that I think we need to reinvigorate within people. Yeah, you know, I heard a story once about um, Fulton Sheen that he was walking in, in New York and he was passing a hospital. And he just shook his, the person he was with recounted this story and said, you know, he, he just looked so troubled and shook his head and people thought, oh, he's, he's, you know, so concerned about the people who are suffering. And, and they said, what's on your mind? And he said, so much wasted suffering. And what he meant by that was mm. suffering by itself doesn't make you holy. Yeah. It can make you bitter. It can make you angry. Yeah. So in the same way, you know, growing up in a big family doesn't necessarily make you virtuous. It doesn't necessarily make you more generous. It really depends on continuing to work on your own faults, to mm. continually cooperate with, with God's grace, to be more generous, to see the sacrifices as, okay, this is where we stretch. This is where we grow. And, and we all do that unevenly, mm, right? Yeah. Because we are sinners. We're not, yeah. we're not perfect. And, and yet I, I think that that was sort of um, a key component of growing up in that large family. We're, everyone sins, right? So there's a lot of, there can be friction, there can be all sorts of difficulties. And yet, I, at least, you know, I, I'll speak for myself, but I, I feel confident that my siblings would feel similarly that, you know, you, you knew what was right. You knew the right way to mm -hmm. treat your siblings. You knew you needed to apologize and forgive. And you knew that Ultimately, we were all pulling together to help each other, you know, to, to live right and to love God. Yeah. So, I was talking to one of our teachers at school uh, this week, actually, and she's the oldest and often, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of found herself helping out a lot right. with, with uh, chores and, and, you know, at times felt like a little mom. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and uh, I was just struck that, you know, that could go one or two, one of two right. ways. You could see it as I started growing in virtue at a very young age, mm -hmm. and I knew like uh, the virtue of hard work, and I knew how to take care. Like, and th and that's how this mm -hmm. uh, teacher's perspective is. But I could also see it also being equally uh, a cause of someone resenting the fact right. that they had to do all this work and um, that that maybe they didn't know, have as much playtime as, as mm -hmm. the, the youngest in the family right, or something right. like that. So, um, you know, I, I really think that, you know, gratitude uh, would be the difference there. And it sounds like in your family, uh, gratitude was, was yeah. talked about and lived out. Yeah. And I think also just realizing that, you know, you are where you are. You don't get to choose your circumstances. I was number two out of 10. God didn't make me number 10, but yeah. you know, we, you have to just accept where you are and, and work with your own difficulties, your own situations. Mm -hmm. And that's true across the board, not just the family that you grow up in, but you can find yourself in positions uh, that you don't expect. So living near Washington, we've been there for, um, gosh, a long time, 35 plus years. You know, we've seen a lot of people rise to that in prominence and status. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of people lose it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and you, you quickly realize that people who place their trust in those externals, what people think of me, what mm -hmm. how much money I have, yeah. all those things, it's an unstable, it's an unstable basis 
for having confidence in in who you are, yeah. and and so in the same way, you know, you grow up in in whatever family you're growing up in. Maybe it had pluses. Every every family has pluses and minuses. But you have to take the good. And then when you do, when you raise your own kids and do your own family, you know, you you try to take take uh, all the good lessons and and you you um, acknowledge where your parents might have been weak or you wish they'd done something different but realize that your own kids are going to say the same thing about you right <laughs> yeah. there's yeah. things that, that we're all just not going to do it perfectly but uh, with God's grace we do the best we can amen amen are, yeah. are there any uh, God winks uh, from your early years that you remember like you, we talked a little bit before off camera about making faith our own. Mm -hmm. uh, are there some moments that stand out in your life where you made your faith your own or God kind of invaded uh, in, yeah. in some sense and helped you to mm -hmm. be aware yeah. of his presence? So when, when I was in law school, I mean, and, and like I said, I was blessed to grow up in a, a strong family and I didn't go through one of those periods where I rejected my faith and everything. But you still, as you become an adult, you have to make it your own. And I, I distinctly remember um, in law school, just coming to the realization that I needed to love God as my father, not mm. just God the Father. Yeah. And, and yeah. to put in that extra effort to read scripture and really try to develop that personal relationship with, with him, realizing that you know, just as in your relationship with your wife or your families, you're not fungible. Right? You right. can't just sort of swap someone else out to take <laughs> right. your place in the relationship. Right. In the same way for God, we're not fungible. It matters. He's loving us. He's calling us. He wants a relationship with me, mm. with you, you know, with, with, with you, with everyone. Yeah. And, and so we have to respond in a personal way. And so coming to that realization as a young woman and realizing that, you know, I, I believed in God. I knew he loved me, but I needed to really connect with him and, and love him more personally. And that's a continuing journey. You know, you don't sort of do it once, just like within any relationship. It's not enough. You, you propose, you love your wife and okay, done, done <laughs> right. with that. No more, no more work on the relationship. That's, that's not how relationships work. Of course. Yeah. So, so you grew up large family. You're in South Bend, right? Yeah. Is that where you grew up? Yeah. Okay. Mishawaka, actually. Mishawaka, okay. Right Give next to South Bend. Big shout out to Mishawaka <laughs> yes. on the podcast here. Um, but then, so you said you went away to law school. Where'd you go to law school? I, I didn't go that far. I went okay. to Notre Dame. Notre Dame, Dame for Dame. law school. Notre Dame right. undergrad and wow. Notre Dame law. Okay, so, okay. But, you know, lived on campus because we live kind of farther out in the country. Yeah. So it was a great place to be. Awesome. And that's where I met my husband. Okay, that's, that that was uh, that was like three more questions straight <laughs> <laughs> off my list. So, um, I guess on that note, we can end this segment. So, um, we go from uh, Mishawaka, right? Did I say yes, that right? Mishawaka. <laughs> Mishawaka. <laughs> All right. It's an to... Indian princess name. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. All right. Yeah, I'm gonna have to do some research on yeah. that. To um, to law school, um, not too far away. But then to D.C. So uh, I want to kind of hear more of that as we get back. So we'll be right back here on Spirit and Spire in just a second. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. This week's episode is sponsored by Family Renewal Project. FRP is a local theology of the body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They're dedicated to renewing the culture through the renewal of the family. They have so many amazing things going on. So check them out at FamilyRenewalProject.com. 
All right, welcome back, everybody. We are here with Mary Hassan, and uh, where we left off was uh, we were at Notre Dame and uh, and law school, undergrad and law school there. And uh, you said you met your husband uh, at Notre Dame, so. Uh, can you fill in a little bit of the details there? What's that story? Sure. So my husband's name is Kevin Hassan. His nickname is Seamus. As I said, that's a longer story. But Seamus. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, um, he also went to Notre Dame undergrad, but also did a master's in theology and then went to law school. So he's a triple domer for yeah. anyone who's a Notre Dame fan. <laughs> you know, three degrees from Notre Dame. Wow. Um, but we didn't, We it turns out we had mutual friends when I was an undergrad, but we never met until law school. And I always think, you know, God's providence being what it is, I, it, it was just the right time mm. when we met in law school. So we ended up falling in love uh, rather quickly, got married like within a year and a half of, of uh, meeting. Wow. And I was a year ahead of him in law school just because he had done that master's. And then, um, so after after we got married, I stayed and worked in South Bend for a year. And then he was looking at, at jobs. and. Um, decided, we thought, oh, we'll go to Washington. We like politics. We'll mm. go there for a few years. And it turned into a few decades. Wow. So, but interestingly, uh, one of the things that, that drew both of us to Notre Dame Law was that the, the faculty, well, my dad was on the faculty there, um, and we knew a lot of the professors. Um, what did he teach? He taught uh, constitutional law okay. and jurisprudence. Okay. okay. But so many faculty members who just really took their faith seriously and still do. There's still some tremendous professors there. Mm. Um, so while my husband was there, he started thinking about wanting to do religious liberty work. Mm. And so that was one of the reasons we went to D.C. He ended up working for a big law firm, but then got pulled into the Justice Department and working on um, issues related to religious freedom. And then went to a law firm that had the church as a client and worked there for a number of years, and then started something called the Beckett Fund, which is mm. a religious liberty mm -hmm. public yeah. interest law Very firm. Cool. And just just really felt drawn to, to serve the Lord in that way. And it's really interesting looking back because neither of us knew what the what the extent of the challenges would be hmm. in terms of religious freedom. Because at the time that he started the Beckett Fund, he was, uh, most of the challenges were things like, well, should a, a city have a Christmas display mm -hmm. as opposed to just Frosty the Snowman? And now we're talking about questions of whether uh, the state can force a doctor to participate in an abortion mm -hmm. or to participate in gender transition surgeries, things like that. You know, things that are, are really huge in terms of, of conscience. So I think it was it was really a God thing where, where God just led him and led us in the sense that by that time I, I practiced for a couple of years and then we, we had a couple of kids. And so I started staying home and just working on sort of a contract basis for other lawyers, writing briefs and, and things mm. like that. And then I, I stopped for a little while, just as our family was growing and, um, it, you know, just focused more on, on family life, especially since he was traveling a lot, but then started being drawn in as our kids got close to school age, um, being drawn into working with people who were interested in education. And, and then I started working more with the church and, and um, you know, had kept my law license. But for us, a, a turning point was my husband was diagnosed with Parkinson's when mm. he was 41. 
Wow. And wow. so we had, you know, all these, at the time we had six kids and I was, I was practicing, but not, not full time. I was practicing part time, but we also, we looked at this and, and we knew that our life was going to take a different trajectory. Yeah. Right. And, and I, you know, speaking of how you grow up, I really think God prepared Hmm. Me, certainly for that, in the sense that I grew up in a family where, okay, you didn't always have what you wanted, but God provides. Hmm. And yeah. and so, and my husband has a great faith. So we really just felt like, okay, if this is, it, he likes to say, he wouldn't have picked this cross. And, and I don't think any of us pick our particular crosses, sure. right. but there have been so many blessings in it. So he was able to continue working for a while, but he retired about 10, 12 years ago. And so I went back to work full time because we needed a salary. Yeah. So I started, um, I, I went to a nonprofit to the mm. Ethics and Public Policy Center. Um, Would you mind elaborating a little more on some of the blessings that have come from the suffering of Parkinson's? Mm-hmm. I, I think that that strikes uh, yeah. a lot of people in our culture as a very strange thing to say mm. um, in some ways. Uh, are there any specific moments or stories that come to mind that... that yeah. yeah, how did you not waste this suffering? Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, <laughs> that was something that was, has been, always has been very much on our hearts because I think one of the things, one of the gifts of it is that not just for the two of us, for my husband and I, but for our children, I think we're so much more conscious of the sufferings that so many others carry, that there are so many invisible sufferings that people have that that you don't even know, you know, and don't don't know their backstories and Mm -hmm. and don't notice. And and I credit my husband for a lot of that in this sense, that as he became more and more disabled, he was the one who would tune into Mm -hmm. the person that, for example, I'm thinking of a a woman who has a a handicapped daughter who's now an adult, but I, I had seen them at mass for, gosh, over a decade. And always said hi, but never got to know them. Yeah. And he was the one who reached out, found her name, and began mm. that conversation. In other wow. words, people who, for better or for worse, sometimes can be invisible to us mm. because we're so busy, right? Yeah. We're, we're so about whatever we're doing. When you have a disability or you have an illness, time is different mm. because... Yeah you realize you don't know what's around the next corner. Yeah. Mm. And and just having also the experience of suffering, I think you become yeah. much more attentive to other people's sufferings. And so one of my takeaways over the years, as particularly since we've been in the parish where we are for a while and knowing people, is that everyone's carrying something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Everyone has brokenness or burdens or, or sin or, or difficulties, whatever they may be. And so as a, you know, a people of God, having that, that heart for others and that ability to pray for others and, and to help in those small ways and, and to be forgiving, to be gracious. You know, if someone's irritating you or, or whatever, just be kind. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't know what burdens they're carrying. So I think in, in terms of blessings, one of the blessings has been, I think, God has given us eyes to see people in, in a more compassionate light, to see the dignity of every person, especially since as a, as a culture, um, you know, our society does not give much weight and much dignity to those who are not productive or are not achieving or not mm. whatever the, the particular accolade might be. You know, my wife mm-hmm. uh, works at the Kentucky School for the Blind here mm. in downtown Louisville, and it's a uh, 
it's been an incredible privilege to watch her work with so many of these kids and you know track and field the cheerleading competitions mm. the uh, global or uh, goal ball i can't even i can't remember what uh, i've seen them play beep ball which yeah. is baseball <laughs> the beeping ball so oh, wow. here <laughs> incredible things that they do mm -hmm. and i was privileged to go in and speak to them about relationships and dating and boundaries uh, uh, when i was teaching mm -hmm. and in the schools throughout the area and i would ask them questions like what are your goals just like i would ask any teenagers yeah. and they would say the same things yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. they give the same answers mm -hmm. and it i think you know the the paradigm is that she taught at the kentucky school for the blind but these kids weren't just suffering from blindness it was so many other things yeah. and yeah. what that really did was help me stop being blind myself mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the needs of others on yeah. that level yeah. and so that suffering that you speak of that opens your eyes to the sufferings of others mm -hmm. i personally experienced that firsthand mm -hmm. when my wife and I started dating and now we're married and it's an incredible yeah. thing to witness her because I look at her as a hero in that mm -hmm. way you mm -hmm. know yeah I think it's been good for our kids too I, I think they are um, compassionate in ways mm. that I, I mean who knows how they would be I would hope they would be compassionate but I, I can definitely see that they they have hearts they can see in a way that I look back when I was 22 or you know, mm. 18 or whatever. I, I don't think I had those eyes mm. for others in the same way. So. Uh, uh, speaking of your kids, I wanted to, to go back to uh, um, what, what are some lessons uh, of being a mother and, and what, are, mm. what are some, you know, memories of, uh, of having young kids? You know, again, as a dad, you know, and, and I think a good chunk of our audience are young parents. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are some things you've learned over the years uh, that, you would, that you would say to young Catholic parents? Um, someone's always going to spill something. <laughs> so that's one. You're probably always going to be late. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know what? Each child is an individual. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things, having seven. I remember someone said to me once, oh, well, you know, you've got, you've got seven kids. So if, if one goes off track sort of what differences make? It's like, no, <laughs> you know, every child is, you care about every you child. You lose track of them, yeah, like a collection like, of marbles or something. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, you know, but so appreciating each one and, and just being curious, not, we don't know what God has mm. planned for each of our kids and, and their talents are going to be so different. And um, I think, we learned a lot in the course of having seven kids. Mm -hmm. So we, we parented differently in, in some respects from the oldest to the youngest. Mm -hmm. But our family dynamic was different too, sure. both in terms mm -hmm. of who was home, whether I was working, you know, all those things. So I think being flexible and, and being tuned into where you are now. And the other thing I would say is that um, in terms of time with kids, kids read love, T-I-M-E. You know, that I think one of the problems of our culture mm. is that we always want to give people time when we have time, mm. yeah. not necessarily when they need it. Mm. And yeah. so one of the critical things is to realize when your kids need you, they need you. Mm. They don't need you to schedule them in some later time. Mm -hmm. And that may mean you're going to lose sleep. That may mean you have to cancel something. That may mean it changes your whole year because a kid's got a, you know, mm. a more in-depth problem. But that's that's human relationships, mm -hmm. you know, so having that, that sense of flexibility and this is, um, you can't be so, you can't be control freaks because you're not in control. <laughs> so Amen. just plain simple. Yeah. 
you know. But yeah. but I, the other thing I would say is when kids are little, especially, there's the gift of joy mm-hmm. because you're seeing everything anew. Yeah. through the eyes of a little kid. And and there's so much wonder. I, I think I appreciated creation and the beauty of, of God's world in a different way mm. when I started having kids and, and I'd stop and you show them a caterpillar. You, sh- you know, all those things that as a, an adult, you squash the bug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, so so there, are, there are gifts and, and wonderful things there. Um, the other thing I would say is, don't be afraid to ask advice. Mm. You know, I look back and, and we made plenty of parenting mistakes. And but I think one early on was that in initially before we learned, you know, I think we were slow to ask advice. Mm-hmm. We thought, oh, we can figure it out or we know what to do or whatever. And even being second of ten, having your own kids is different, and yes. your own kids are not—they're unlike anyone else. So ask advice, get help. Don't be afraid to to let people know you need help, you need support. Um, Amen. All right. So I think uh, that wraps it up for this segment, Mary. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, we've gotten from uh, we've gotten to Washington D.C. Um, I don't know if I would call that the promised land, though. <laughs> you stayed there long enough again. Um, but but through some great suffering um, too. So um, yeah. So that wraps it up for this segment, and we'll be right back after this short break on Spirit and Spire. Hey everyone, another sponsor for today's episode is the Cathedral of the Assumption in the heart of downtown Louisville, Kentucky. It is the spiritual center of parish and family life and is a historic treasure for the Catholic Church in America. Take a tour or consider visiting for Mass. Check them out at cathedraloftheassumption.org. And we're back with Mary Hassan on Spirit and Spire. Uh, we left off Washington, D.C., um, where you founded the Person and Identity Project. Um, speak more to that and what that is and what you do there. Sure, so I'm a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and, and that's a, um, a think tank. And mm. we do things too, we don't just think, but. I was gonna say, it, cause you hear the term <laughs> think tank a lot. And like, could you just say mean? like, maybe what yeah. that is first? Sure, and, uh, sure, sure. Uh, no, uh, it sounds it. awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like, as someone who doesn't like work very much, <laughs> yeah. but who really likes to think. I like uh, to sit in a tank. In my mind, <laughs> in my mind, in my mind it's very easy, but I'm sure it's so, not. So, so what we do is um, we, each scholar has specialty and and so we um, the Ethics of Public Policy Center has scholars who are Jewish Muslim or not Muslim Jewish Christian and Catholic and um, we try to bring the influence of faith the Judeo-Christian ethics to bear on public policy hmm. so what does that look like it means we do a lot of research we do a, ro- a lot of writing we do advising of uh, legislators state legislators people in Congress working with people who are in the nonprofit world who overlap in terms of issues. So my particular area is, because I'm in the Catholic Studies wing of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, um, I have done a lot of work with the church. So originally on issues like marriage and sexuality mm-hmm. and how to how to prepare people. I work with um, trying to lead women and mentor young women and help them embrace their vocation to, to womanhood. Yeah. and. So that was sort of the larger context. But then I got a, uh, a grant that enabled me to spend a fair amount of time researching 
issues of coercion on a global scale. And so I was looking at contraception because there's a real coercive element mm -hmm. to contraceptive being pushed on people from the developing world. Mm. But in the course of it, I also found there was a lot of coercion regarding the whole issue of gender ideology and, mm. and identities and male-female difference and things like that. So uh, and so then I did a deeper dive, so to speak, into the question of gender ideology. Can you can you go uh, just for mm -hmm. a second a little deeper on coercion? Because it sounds like you're using it in a in a fairly technical way. So uh, is would would yeah, that be accurate? Yeah, economic coercion okay. and, and cultural coercion, not not physical, like someone's got a gun. So like to your we're head. taking away funding because exactly. of this or that and exactly. that forces and, you to comply. Right. And that is a huge problem. It's something Pope Francis has spoken about, for example, mm. repeatedly since the beginning of his papacy. But you see that because the development world uh, looks at, at countries that need help because of poverty or, or lack of development. And they say, um, the, the people with money have their own agenda, mm -hmm, which yeah. isn't necessarily aligned with what people need, nor is it necessarily respectful of their cultures. So that's mm. one of the problems in Africa. The church in Africa has really been very vocal in terms of pushing back mm. at some of these agendas that come in with not just the UN, but all of the many NGOs that, that work with them, where they're pushing contraception, pushing abortion, uh, pushing comprehensive sex ed, in a, a, which is very explicit mm -hmm. in ways that even if you didn't have a moral problem with it, you would say, this is sort of cultural imperialism. It's really, yeah. and that's where the Pope called it ideological colonization. Yeah. Where, that was the word that came to mind for me, yeah. was colonialism or colonization. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it's seriously a, a very much of a problem, mm. not just in Africa, but the Caribbean, South and Central America. Mm. So, so that was the larger area that I was interested in. But when I started looking at the issue of gender ideology and seeing it on a global scale and then looking at what was already going on in the U.S., I came away saying, oh my gosh, we as a church are not prepared mm. to deal with this. We need to help parents be aware, to help schools understand what these cultural influences are and how it's going to be affecting their students, the teachers they hire, and, um, and use this as an opportunity. And, and I think that's really an important thing. It's not just saying, oh, there's a problem out there in the culture. It's saying, okay, there's, there's a problem, but it's a distortion of the correct understanding of the human person. Mm. So what's needed? We need to speak the truth about who we are what it means to be a human person, what it means to be a man or a woman, and, and how family fits into that. So it's, it's an opportunity, really, for the church to bring all of its wisdom and its teaching uh, into not just the cultural conversation, but into the hearts of our own people mm. who are always influenced by the culture. All of us are. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so anyway, that's, that's how I got into it. Yeah. So what is what is the project look? So person and identity project. Mm -hmm. So are there other people working with yeah. you? How many people? Uh, you know, what what does kind of a day at work look like? Yeah. So um, I'm blessed that there are two other women in particular who were co-founders with me. Um, Teresa Farnan, who is my sister, who is a seminary professor mm. for many years, That's and now beautiful. is working exclusively on this project. And Susan Selner Wright, who is um, at the seminary St. John Vianney Seminary in Denver. And they both are tremendously talented, faithful women with a lot of insight on this. So we uh, just, it grew out of some other work that I was, some other collaboration with them. And where we saw this need and we said, 
we've got to do this. There's, there's something we can do. There's yeah. something we can mm. do. We can help to put some materials out there, put the, the uh, teaching of the church out there, find a way to train people. How do we communicate this to bishops so they see the problem, so that they turn in, in turn will we'll help educate their, their uh, priests and, and things like that. And, and you might say, well, wait a minute, don't people in the church already know all this? Yeah. But, right. I, I mean, the truth is, yes, you go through seminary and you learn... Christian anthropology, you learn the, the teachings of the church, but now you have to understand what you're seeing in the culture and, and how that's challenging those teachings and what effect that's having on all the people who are sitting in your pews. As well Sunday. as how yeah. to speak to it. Mm -hmm. Well, and yeah. listening to this podcast, so maybe this is a good time to kind of yeah. uh, define some of these things that we're talking about. And sure. So, you know, maybe, maybe we could just start with, you know, with the human person. I mean, mm -hmm. why, why does any of this matter anyway, uh, you know, I, I, a child of God is a, is an identity, um, that the Catholic church offers. Mm -hmm. Um, I would think that maybe it starts there, but, um, help us understand, you know, uh, why are you so passionate mm -hmm. about identity and, and who man is? Uh, we have an episode uh, that came out just before yours called who, who man is. Uh -huh. And um, so we talked a little bit about it, but um, you know, how would you define it? So here's the thing. Every person, every person has it built into them to figure out who am I? Mm. And it, it's a task, particularly in adolescence. Now the culture used to, um, take certain things off the table. We didn't question whether we were male or female. Mm. So when I was growing up, the, the question of who am I was, how am I alike or different from my siblings? Mm. How are, am I going to um, imagine my life and, and how I live out my talents and God's call in a way that's similar to or different from my parents or people I admire? Mm. You know, so it's it's working out your your future, but it was rooted in a truth that mm. we already knew. Right, you you knew where you came from, and and you knew the truth about being created by God, male or female. But what's happening today is people have that very same yearning, because you have to figure out who you are in order to be able to answer the other key questions. But without the certainty, without the certainty, it's it's completely destabilized. So if you don't know who you are, you can't answer the question of what's the meaning of my life. You know, how should I live? because all of that flows from understanding who you are. So when the culture says, uh, we're, everything's up for grabs, you get to self-define who you are mm. because we're, we're throwing God out. There is no creator. You are a self-creator. You, mm. you define for yourself. It makes things very unstable. And so uh, not surprisingly, we're seeing kids being very destabilized by this. I would think that, um, you know, we've talked about relative, relativism mm -hmm. on this show before and, and this this idea that we, we kind of make our own truth. You know, historically that was, you know, I would think more in the philosophical realm. But, uh, you know, Pope Benedict talked about the dictatorship mm -hmm. of relativism. It was like, we all make our own truth, but you need to <laughs> go along with right, mine. Right. Um, yeah. But but that's almost like that's it's expanded and gone beyond philosophy at this point to where even even the the physical mm -hmm. nature of things of our bodies has been called into question. Like everything's up for grabs. Right. Um, is is that where that starts? I mean, what you know, it it, it really goes back to the rejection of God, and that's mm. something that Pope Benedict spoke about. He said, when you reject the Maker, mm. you will also lose sight of the image of God in man. 
mm. and you will the dignity of the person will no longer be respected. And that's what we're seeing. So you might wonder as as you hear the stories in the media about people undergoing all these gender transition procedures, mm -hmm. right? They have a healthy body to start with, and all of a sudden they're getting their breasts cut off and their ovaries removed and you know, on and on. And, and you think, why would someone do that? It's degrading. It, it harms the human person. Mm -hmm. But if you no longer have a vision of what it means to be a human, the fact that we receive our identity as mm -hmm. male or female as a gift from God, and you think, oh, this is all up to me, I get to decide anything. It's we become sort of like Adam and Eve back in the garden, thinking we can be like God. Mm. We can we can write our own future, write our own destiny. But it's ultimately it's a rejection of God and a rejection of the idea that we're called to eternal life. The, there's a purpose to our body. There's there's mm. a purpose to creation. When you throw all of that out and it's all up for grabs, well, you can decide how to live, how to redesign yourself. Mm. There's no guarantee of good results. And in fact, the results are not good. It sounds to me about. like you are on the you know, front lines of helping to rebuild or completely replace this fallen culture with mm -hmm. the authentic truth, goodness, and beauty of what it actually means to be a human person. Because so many people, I feel like they have been sucked in by this social media technological revolution in a way that they didn't mean to. They didn't know. Right, right, they, right. You couldn't have foreseen all of the mm -hmm. things that would be offered to us at the click of a button mm -hmm. that can utterly transform your worldview and isolate you from your own family yeah. and your own culture mm -hmm. and your own faith to where you don't have a faith, you don't have a culture, you don't have a family, right? and you feel in a void. I think so, uh, I think to, to speak to that too, um, just in my personal experience and knowing people who, uh, who struggle with these things, is that is one of the first things that I notice is that um, the, the first thing that, that goes wrong is that now they're completely detached from their family, mm -hmm. um, even on this issue. So um, they could even have a faithful Christian family but um, they they definitely have drawn a line in the sand, and uh, and there is a detachment first uh, before any of the other stuff. I would say mm -hmm. even the the dysphoria and stuff that I and just from experience that I've seen is there is a complete cutoff from their mm -hmm. family, their family, everything that they were raised to believe, everything that uh, their family says at this point is wrong. Um, so I know we've been talking a lot about family, but can you kind of speak to that and? Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, maybe maybe it is the internet or whatever's driving yeah. that engine. No, I, I think that's it's a really good observation. And I think one of the things that, that I've found in working on this issue for a while and knowing many families who've either uh, people personally who've gone through these um, this kind of identity issue, or they love someone who mm. who has gone through it um, or is going through it, is that oftentimes people do not see that gender ideology is utterly incompatible with Christian anthropology, the vision of the person. It's two completely different visions of the person, but they don't see that at the outset. One, one thing I wanted to say mm -hmm. before we, it was uh, one thing I learned from you uh, is that gender ideology, you first heard that from Pope Francis. Is that 
Is yeah, he was right? the one who or, or sort the first of popularized one to use it. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, so okay. He was. It was yeah. in a document. That was something that as he, I was he researching, recognized you, the trend that was taking place. Well, and named yeah. It. Yes. Pope Benedict also spoke of, of sort of the theory of gender. So okay. it, it was on the radar because in Europe there was a lot more uh, sort of action around that before it came over to the U.S. But the U.S. is now the major purveyor of just pushing it mm. through the culture into these other other cultures. But in terms of family. Um, I think people oftentimes don't realize that this is such a harmful path and that it's completely incompatible with Christian anthropology because it involves a rejection of the creator. They're not deliberately saying, oh, I'm going to reject God. Hmm. But that's where you end up. Hmm. That's where you end up. I, in, in my experience anyway, people oftentimes, they'll encounter someone or have someone they love who's become confused about this and they want to be compassionate. And so they think being compassionate means how, how can I validate what they're feeling? How can I um, support them in what seems to be important to them? And yet you have to realize we don't validate people's false beliefs when we know they're harmful. Yeah. And so if you have someone who is suicidal yeah. and, and they believe they're worthless and they believe their life has no meaning and everyone else would be better off if they were dead. You wouldn't want to validate you that. You don't validate that right. because it's not true. Yeah. And it's not only not true, but to validate that is going to encourage them to go down a harmful path. Mm. So it's the same thing here that when someone believes that somehow they're born in the wrong body, which is um, incoherent, you cannot be born in the wrong body because all your cells are the same. You're either male or female. And so you can't be born in the wrong body. But if you've got these feelings that don't match with your body, it's like, okay, that's, that's what you're struggling with. But what's the proper response to that? When we have someone who's anorexic and their feelings don't match the reality of their body, we don't say, okay, what do you feel like doing to make you feel better? Well, they want to diet. They want to lose more weight. They want to uh, starve themselves. We don't, we don't validate that. We don't encourage that because that's harmful to the person. So in the same way, no one can change sex. And that's an important thing out there, sort of in the culture. There's a lot of teenagers and young adults I encounter. They sort of in a very fuzzy way think, oh, yeah, I, if I'm a female, I can become a man. No, you can't. No, you can't. And I'll tell you as a lawyer, I look at the informed consent documents on the gender clinics. They don't promise to change anyone's sex because they can't. Yeah. All they promise is that they'll give you hormones or surgery to masculinize or feminize write, your body. They don't even write that in? No. The because they can't. Their lawyers aren't going to let them do that because mm -hmm. it's not true. All you can do is change the appearance and destroy the natural function. That's what you're doing when someone goes down the path of, of a gender transition. So it takes someone who has a, a healthy body and you introduce these high levels of hormones that are make things out of order in their own body. Yes, it'll produce some of the secondary sex characteristics, but it's not changing their cells. It doesn't change any of their reproductive apparatus. You can get your own um, genitals or, or reproductive organs removed, but the facsimiles that they attach don't work. Mm. It, it's appearance only. So what are you doing here? You know, when someone has this false belief that they can truly become someone that they can't, how is that compassionate to validate that and, and further their, their path 
in a way that's just going to harm them physically. And ultimately, they have to come back to the truth about who they are. Mm. And, and I'd say, I'd say from uh, just just my personal experience, and I think there might have been some more uh, naivete um, earlier on. Mm. Um, you know, when I was in high school, this is all. I'd say pretty new stuff, mm -hmm. and then moving into college, I, I know people who um, have struggled that were that were older than I am, that mm -hmm. I looked up to, um, that have gone through this sort of thing, and then I definitely have um, friends that are younger than me who probably mm -hmm. looked up to me and probably looked towards me um, to give them an example, and, and I may have failed them in um, perhaps that overly compassionate. Um, drive and uh, just thinking that tone that line when you have the individual in front of you who um, thinks okay and you talked about the feeling of uh, versus the reality but mm -hmm. they say I have this feeling of uh, that I'm in the wrong body and if I don't do this I mean uh, I know one young person who had worked for me that uh, that had committed suicide um, you know due to due to this issue mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and and when you look at the rates I mean high, high suicide rates mm -hmm. is, is what I've seen. Um, as you mentioned, suicide too. Um, so, so how do you address it? You have on one hand, if I, if I address it and I'm overly compassionate, mm -hmm. I'm pushing them towards something that isn't reality, something that um, could mutilate them, that could harm them for the rest mm -hmm. of their life, something that they could come to regret. And then also, you know, I, I really have seen it the other way too, the mm -hmm. exact opposite argument of, um, Unless I do this thing, I'll never be in the right body. And if I don't do it while I'm young, mm -hmm. uh, if I don't do it soon enough, I'll be in the wrong body if I don't have this. So when you have the person in front of you, I guess, uh, how, how, can a, how can someone, especially a Catholic mm -hmm. uh, individual, respond to a loved one dealing with this, uh, with, with that dichotomy of, of two extremes? Yeah, so I, I'd caution you a little bit in, in this sense. It's not compassionate. You said you know you were maybe too compassionate. It's a misplaced compassion. Misplaced compassion. It's, it's, it's a false compassion. Fair In other enough. Words, your intention is really good, yeah. but just as it's not helpful to the person who's suicidal to say, "Okay, go ahead," you know, I'll validate your feelings. Go ahead. It's not true compassion sure. to encourage someone to do something that's harmful. Sure. Um, and the other side of that that you brought up, you know, people who have committed suicide. So here's here's what the data show is that people who tend to have these difficulties with identity also have high rates of mental health issues pre-existing. So in um, in clinical samples, you get rates as high as 88 percent of people who experience gender dysphoria, this disconnect between their identity and their body, 88% who will have uh, pre-existing mental health issues, depression, anxiety. They may be on the autism spectrum, which also has a higher rate of suicide. They may have ADHD, they may have body issues. Again, all these things themselves carry higher rates of suicide risk. So, so that's one thing to realize. You have someone who is hurting. You have someone who's troubled. And yet this is proposed as a solution. Yeah. And in the long term, it's not. Yeah. Because what the long term data shows is that people commit suicide at all different phases of transition. Because if you're not dealing with the underlying wounds, if you're not helping them discover really what's the source of that pain, then it gets That's not even related to gender or sex. Right, right. right. And typically way. it's not. Because the other thing that comes out in the research is there's a high rate of... of 
people, especially for young people, but it holds true for adults who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, but who have backgrounds with attachment disorders. Mm. In other words, something went wrong in their childhood. And it may not be someone's fault. It may not be because they have a rejecting parent. It could be they lost someone they loved. A parent mm. died, a grandparent, and they've got this unresolved grief and loss and this sense of abandonment and insecurity. And, and all those things can be precipitators. So, so, so realize you have a hurting population. So then the question is, is it really helpful? Are you really reducing their suicide risk by encouraging them down this path? Sure. And, the, and the data says no, because what happens is you initially will have what they call a, a gender euphoria, a feeling of, oh, okay, mm. I'm finally, finally on my way. Right, I can yeah. be recognized as if I feel like a male. People are now seeing the stubble and they're, they're recognizing me as a male. Mm. It doesn't last, it doesn't last. So the best data we have comes from Europe. Because of socialized medicine, they keep better track than we do. Here it's kind of like the Wild West. Gender surgeons are not reporting and they oftentimes mm. don't do follow-up. They yeah. may you know, remove someone's organs and then sayonara, see it, you know, and, and yeah. they right. don't know what Good happens. Risk. But the long-term data shows that at, at year 10 and beyond, the mental health drops, mm. the happiness factor drops, the quality of life drops. But even before that, the average time to suicide for those who do commit suicide, who are experiencing you know, gender dysphoria or identity issues, the average time is six years after they start transition. Mm. Wow. So if transition- Where they commit suicide. Where they commit suicide. And, and it's tragic. The loss of any life is tragic. Okay. But what's playing in here is that there's a false belief. There's a hope. There's an expectation mm. that I see it as cruel. You know, if you know something's not, it is only going to cause someone harm, why are you promising them it's going to do something it can never do? Yeah. It can never. They can never change I sex. Would. You can never. Uh, the data, it, you, you just are not solving the problem. I would think... I know that there are, you know, huge communities of young people online that mm -hmm. um, you've got someone maybe with mental illness and, and you know, a community on Discord or something will mm -hmm. say, uh, which is a funny name if, in this context, yeah. um, but uh, they'll, they'll say, oh, maybe you have gender issues and, and everything would be fine if mm -hmm. you took these steps. I'm, as you say that, I'm thinking of probably a lot of those people who are saying you should do this are still very early mm -hmm. in that um, process. Or they're people who transitioned later in life and mm. they're, they're projecting backwards and they're, they're unhappy, even though they've transitioned. And they're saying, my problems would be solved mm. if I if had I'd transitioned earlier. earlier. So they make it their, their sort of life's work mm. to encourage young people who are experiencing this kind of confusion to go down this path. But Really what we see is you have vulnerable people who particularly oftentimes feel like they don't fit in, they're lonely, they find an online community, and the online community just encourages this. Whatever your problems are, it's probably because you're trans. And so there are quizzes. And that can and that puts you in dichotomy against your your parents, your family. Exactly. And all of a sudden the you know the alienation. The who, yeah, sets the people it. who really love you and are, mm -hmm. are trying to help you as best they can, maybe don't have the vocabulary. All of a sudden, they they're opposed to mm -hmm. what has become the clear solution to this, or something like right. that. I had a, a young person in the youth ministry I worked mm -hmm. with before I 
transition to family renewal project and uh, we were speaking about these I was shown a video of uh, one of the national speakers uh, in a program we had and afterward she didn't seem to understand what he was saying and mm -hmm. it turned out that her aunt had or her uncle had transitioned to her aunt her father didn't appreciate his brother becoming a woman and didn't know how to handle that mm -hmm. and it became so intense out of hand that one day she heard a gunshot in her own home and saw the body and it was i i did not yeah, expect yeah, yeah. that story when i was just shown a theology of the body for teens yeah. like program video series mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and her response was so visceral so painful i've never forgotten it but mm -hmm. i'm like and and this is why she advocates and believes that well the reason that she that her uncle did this is because he wasn't accepted for who he mm -hmm. really was it just and isn't that's, true gosh, that, that's how they so, feel how, how do you speak how do you yeah. help someone see that that's yeah. so oh and and like i said that you know there's multiple studies the mental health doesn't improve and so really the way to look at that is what you've done is you put a band-aid on a very deep wound and a yeah. band-aid's not going to solve it no and and so it does a disservice to someone but you know this this young woman's experience unfortunately is typical in this sense that when someone identifies as transgender it changes all the relationships Right, someone who is a boy who now says he's a girl. Well, he wants to be your daughter instead of your son. He wants to be your sister instead of your brother. Your you know, your niece instead of your. It changes everything, and and that's that's not fair to other people either. So there's a lot of pain mm. around this issue, regardless of which path you go down. And I think the church is wise. It says we have to relate to other people um, in terms of the truth, the truth about who yeah. we are. And fundamentally, it's not, truth and charity are the same because they're both God. You know, God is God yeah. is truth and God is love. How, and, how do you answer that argument though, that uh, um, if, if the whole society was more accepting, mm -hmm. these issues would go away? That's a, that's a, that's a hard one to... It, no, it's not hard and here's why. It sounds nice, but it has not proven true because when you look, for example, at the Scandinavian countries, yeah. which are far more liberal, and far more sort of accepting on these issues, you have the very same high rates of suicide mm. after that initial honeymoon period, after transition. It's not a question of not being accepted. Mm. It's a question of the reality that you can't change sex. But what you're doing is you're taking someone with a healthy body, but whose, whose mind and emotions are, are troubled. And now you're introducing medicines and surgery that are going to make their body no longer healthy, and that can cause additional problems, which exacerbates everything. And, and you lie to them too. For example, a male who trans, transitions, you know, and changes appearance to appear more like a female, there's, guys are not gonna wanna date him because they wanna mm. date a woman. Mm. They wanna date someone who is capable of having marital intercourse and, and having children, God willing. Yeah. So all of a sudden, this person's relationship pool narrows. There's a lot of loneliness, yeah. but nobody's telling them that. Right. Nobody's telling them that. It's, it's really holding out a, a, a mirage that they can somehow be like God, and God must have made a mistake giving them this body. Mm. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't really change do? it. What do you do? You know what? Honestly, you love the person in front of you, but you have to love people enough to say, you know, there's a truth here. 
and I'm drawing boundaries. I will love you, I will stand by you, but I'm not gonna facilitate something I know is harm, yeah. harmful, because that's what we do in other areas of our lives. It's just because this has become so politicized, we, we feel like, oh, we can't draw those boundaries. Well, to the point where people don't even feel like they can talk about it. That yeah. we can't even have this conversation because it would be seen as combative, divisive, uh, bigoted, whatever word we mm. want to associate with it. We can't even speak about it. And when you choose not to talk about it, all you're doing is permitting unhealthy, violent, uh, and evil situations to perpetuate and get yeah. worse. Yeah, because that silence, it, it, you know, the vacuum gets filled by the culture. Mm. And, and the one positive thing I think that can be helpful for people to know is that there is a growing number of young people uh, in their late teens, early 20s, who've gone down this mm -hmm. transition path and who after four or five years realize it, it just wasn't true. Yeah. I ended up worse off. And are speaking out, and they're you on know, YouTube. I think it's called like detransition de stories or something. Yep. I've, I've seen there's, there's many testimonies yeah. on YouTube that are very powerful. And there's a number of documentaries. That um, gives me hope. Yeah, and and they're tremendously powerful because they are speaking from their experience. Oh. They know what it feels like to be 12 and to feel like your body's mm. all wrong, yeah. and you don't fit in, and and. There must be a, a better solution than growing up to be a woman or a, a man. They understand that. And yet they also know the experience of being lied to and, and their parents being manipulated by that threat of suicide. Oh, they're going to commit suicide if yeah. you do this. It's like, no, you have a vulnerable kid. Mm. You need to keep this kid safe. But this is not a solution. So their, their testimony is tremendously powerful. And it, and, and, and it, is concluding with them finding their identity and mm -hmm. being at peace. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that makes it so yeah. powerful. It's yes. like, and now I actually know who I am. And yes, I regret this. And I mm -hmm. and some of them are painful. Um, yeah. Yeah, but there is also a lot of hope, too, because they're mm -hmm. like, I finally know who I am, really. And mm -hmm. so there, there's some beauty there, too. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, that's a lot for this segment. <laughs> um, yeah, heavy to say the least. Uh, I do want to say that if anybody out there is watching and they want to reach out, um, spiritinspire at gmail.com or spiritinspire at aol.com um, for, for all you millennials out there. Um, you know, uh, we, Good old we, AOL. Yeah. Still around. We definitely want to. <laughs> we uh, we're the only so. ones with an AOL. Yeah, we're the only ones with an AOL account. Just I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and we will be back with Mary in just a bit. Hey everyone, here at Spirit Inspire, we want to serve our community by highlighting God's work in our parishes, schools, and apostolates. We hope to bring renewal and unity between all those in the body of Christ. If you would like a shout out in the next episode of Spirit Inspire, go to spiritinspire.com or email us at spiritinspire at gmail.com. Thanks and God bless. And we're back on Spirit Inspire with Mary Hassan. Um, John, I think is it Hassan or Hassan? Hassan. Hassan. You said Hassan last time. I, well, like, I think it was what? two times ago. Maybe it was. Maybe. The, fact, the, the truth remains. <laughs> Mary Hassan. I, I was going to tell Eric to do another roll into one of the segments, but now he has to keep it because he made fun of him. So. I, uh, I think, uh, I think um, yeah, I, I was going to do it differently every take, but then that would be against reality, too. So, uh, true. You know, and that's not her identity. Yeah. Right. My maiden name was Rice. No one ever got that. Yeah, wrong, yeah, no yeah. reche or anything like that. <laughs> All right. 
So John, uh, what was your question? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Mary. Sure. It's a, a privilege yeah. to have you, and and uh, this has been a very lively and and very intense conversation. And I think it's important that we kind of move toward a more hopeful uh, way of looking at this issue and ourselves as people. Um, one thing that I have grown up with, growing up here in Louisville, uh, born and raised Catholic, uh, went to a small Catholic school, small Catholic church, small Catholic high school, um, came back and worked in youth ministry, and I've loved every bit of it, but what I've witnessed in the Archdiocese in Louisville specifically in the Catholic world is there's a strong sense of a Catholic identity. Right? We're a big city with a small town feel. Everybody knows each other. And we have that strong sense of belonging that, oh, I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic right. high school, went to this Catholic church. But I don't know if we move beyond that Catholic identity in a way that fully like brings us fully alive, like mm -hmm. we really look mm -hmm. forward to, both as men and as women, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I think this particular phrase mm -hmm. from John Paul II could maybe help people begin that journey from their identity to their purpose, as well mm -hmm. as a healthy lifestyle, both when it comes to sexuality and gender, but also going to church, loving your family, just right. being a healthy, holistic human person. And so this is the phrase. What do you think when you hear the phrase from John Paul II, feminine genius, and how would you define it? What insights might we gain from a phrase like that concerning womanhood and femininity? Yeah, yeah, it's actually a controversial phrase. I bet. Some, some, <laughs> some women don't like it. They mm. feel like it's, is it patronizing because why are you not talking about masculine genius? Well, have, for, for the record, we're asking you because yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, no, you, no. you talk about it a lot. No, and, and I think it, it is true. I, I think it also is true that there is a masculine genius. And the yes. way to, to think of the person is relational mm. because... That makes me feel good. Yeah, there, there you go. There's, there's, hope, there's hope for you yet. No, well, yeah. Oh, well, not all. But here's the insight that JP2 was getting at. And his insight is, is one that we know experientially. And that's that women have an attentiveness to the person. JP2 called it uh, women seeing others with the eyes of the heart. And I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. And so what does that mean? What's the impact of that? He talked about how it's important for women to be in all aspects of culture because we bring that sensitivity towards the person. Mm. Whereas masculine genius, there is one, but you can see in, in societies that are, are sort of very masculine without the complementarity of, of femininity, is that you can have almost a utilitarianism. You can have mm. a goal direction that, that can um, trample on the sensitivities and the needs of the human person. So one of the things that John Paul II was observing was that, that when you have that dynamic, that male-female complementarity, and women are being women and men are being men, what, part of what women bring to that equation with all our talents, whether you're an engineer or a lawyer or you know, a, a yoga instructor or whatever it might be, whatever your gifts are, women tend to bring that added attentiveness to the person to humanize the culture. So he talks about women having um, an important mission in society. So he talks about women bearing witness to the truth of marriage and the family, mm. but also having responsibility for shaping the moral dimension of culture. 
Hmm. And so I look at the culture, and I think one of the problems that we've seen is that that um, while there were a lot of good things about feminism, making sure that women had opportunities to get an education and, and be full participants in, in the culture and the wider world, there was an edge with radical feminism and Marxist feminism that diminished the idea of the person and diminished what it meant to be a, a woman. And so we, we sort of missed the opportunity that even as women were getting more, more opportunities in the secular world, to really do what we're called to do, which is shape the moral dimension of culture. You look mm. at where the moral dimension of culture is, it's not in a good place. Right. And yet, one of the things I think is, has been tremendously interesting over the past year, year and a half, has been sort of the uprising of moms in, in terms of schools as they looked mm -hmm. at what their kids were suffering, and uh, both with COVID, but then what their kids are being exposed to. And so all of a sudden, you have these moms who are stepping forward and saying, wait a minute, this is not right. This is not good and healthy, and, and we have a voice here. Mm. And so I think just across uh, across all areas of the culture, I think that's that's what women do. Mm. You know, we we're it's really interesting because as I'm thinking about sort of experts I know on gender mm. ideology and some of these mm. issues, a lot of them are women. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also thinking that I, I'm I'm pretty sure, and I'm sure you know that uh, whether um, a lot of the kids that struggle with gender dysphoria. Is, isn't it a per yeah. prevalence of girls? Yeah, now um, it is. It okay. used to be a tiny percent of the population, like a fraction of a fraction of a percent, and that was usually adult males or very young children who were hmm. mostly males. But what we've seen with this, this sort of latest phenomenon is it's two to one females to males. Huh. You still have males wow. who are who are struggling with it, but it's a hard time to be a woman in our mm. culture. You know, there there is this over sexualization. Um, there's an emphasis on body. There's, and at the same time, a diminishing. What does it mean to be a woman? Are you mm. supposed to be just like a man? And well, I think we've gotten to a point where we think that men and women uh, are in competition with one another yeah. in mm. a way where we have to eliminate the sexual difference as if it doesn't mean anything. Whereas I think we need to seek complementarity so that we can see that men and women are equal but different, just like two, mm -hmm. two, two plus two equals three plus one, right? Mm -hmm. They look and operate differently, but there's right. this... There's just beauty within both. It's, so I'll, yeah. I'll give you an example of how that plays out in society. So yeah. we've seen after the Dobbs decision, you know, where the court struck down Roe v. Wade, we saw all these corporations saying, we're going to pay for women's abortions. We're going to pay their travel expenses so they can go to a state where abortion is still legal. They're not offering to do the same for their childbirth and childcare yeah. expenses. So what they're doing is they're trying to treat women like the unencumbered male worker. Mm. In other words, you can have sex, but you know we're, we're going to disregard the the needs of your body for pregnancy or for nursing or for you know those early year early months of recovering. We're we're not we're going to pretend you are just like men, and we're going to incentivize that. We're going to help you get rid of your children because we're not valuing you as females. We're not looking and saying, yeah, males and females are different. So when a woman has a baby, she needs accommodations in order to be able to get back on her feet and, and, and to bond with the baby in a way that's different from men. But for corporate America, it's all about having worker cogs and they all should be uh, identical, which means on the male model. That's an undervaluing of women. So this abortion mindedness in the corporate culture 
is really just a, a diminishing of the value of women. So where do you find hope? So I find hope in the fact that we can have conversations like this. I find hope in the one-on-one -on -one relationships. I've seen tremendous miracles in people's lives, particularly in the area of, say, gender ideology or people who've gotten, mm -hmm. gotten sort of caught up and there's so much suffering in the families. And yet I have seen miracles happen with people coming to the reality, the truth about who they are family relationships being healed, and, and even apart from this whole idea of gender ideology, you know, the truth is the truth, and God, God is in, in charge, in a sense, but He loves everyone. So when we're made for this moment, mm -hmm. and right now people need to hear the truth. And so if all of this consternation and, and turmoil gives us an opportunity to tell people how loved they are and how valuable they are, just as God made them, that's a tremendous thing. And that, that's, that's part of sharing the gospel. So. You've spoken about the equality of brokenness. Could you like maybe speak to that a bit and see what kind of healing from Christ that that would bring us? Yeah, so I think everyone needs to, we, we tend to easily um, idealize people instead of realizing every one of us, we're not God. We all sin. We have brokenness, we have weak, weakness, we have relationships that need healing, and that's part of being human. Mm. But God doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us sort of struggling on our own with all those things. That's the power of grace. That's the power of the sacraments. That's why it makes a difference to be Catholic. You know, I can go to Mass and I receive the Lord, and it's like, I am carrying the Lord, and Lord, you know, help me to be you in my relationships with others. That's a tremendous, tremendous gift. So if, if there's anything that, that can sort of move us beyond just being culturally Catholic, it's really embracing that truth and saying, okay, God's really there and he wants a relationship with me. I think I need to respond. I think it's time. So. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for being on. And you heard it here first, folks. Well, maybe not first. You heard it here, folks. Um, God loves you, um, and he has an awesome plan for your life. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Spirit and Spire.